So today I'm going to talk, talking with Marty Steer. This is a conversation that I don't want to have whatsoever. <laughs> it's about leading and about memories and about Kajabi. And I don't want to have it because I don't want you guys ever to leave. Um, that is the hardest part of life in Kajabi. But amazing people come and amazing people go. And you're going to do amazing things and stay in touch. But first, why don't you give an introduction, as you said to the medical team the other day. Yeah, so this is bittersweet for me as well. Um, we came to Kajabi in 2011 and planned to stay for two years. And here we are, eight and a half years later, taking our leave. And in some ways, it's inevitable. You can't stay in a place forever. But I have so many... It's been a real opportunity for me to reflect. Well, let me pause you real quick there. Um, so when you first came, who is we? And then what, were you, what did you come to do? <laughs> um, in 2011, I was a young pediatric emergency physician with an engineering husband looking for a place where we felt like God had said to whom much is given, much is required. And we knew our next step was to go in somewhere and serve with the, the gifts and the passions and the exposure and education that we'd been given. Um, and so I came as a pediatrician and the hospital hadn't had a long-term pediatrician in quite a while. And Jennifer Myrie had just joined the team in 2010 and my husband Andy is a civil engineer and project manager and now theological educator as well and we moved here with our then two-year-old and four-year-old to do whatever seemed to be next. That's amazing. Well yeah so give the theological introduction to yeah. the Ebenezer. You know it, it comes from First um, Samuel chapter 7 verses 7 to 12 where there's a battle against the Philistines and the Israelites win. And Samuel lays a stone, um, an Ebenezer to God being faithful and to what God has done. And when Andy and I got married in 1998, actually, it was a scripture that was read at our wedding. And we were encouraged when these Ebenezer moments come, take stock of them, step back, and acknowledge what God has done. And they those moments will be key moments in your marriage. And as I was talking to the medical division the other day, I felt like it was just another reminder that as we have our professional lives and we work in a place like Kajabi and we serve, it's really easy to get caught up in the day-to-day, -day, in the daily struggles that we all have with life and death and bureaucracy and not enough money and not enough equipment and team dynamics and conflict. But there are these Ebenezer moments when we take a step back and we see what God has done. This hospital has been around for a hundred years and I've only been here for a little over eight of them. But there are so many moments where I, I look back on where we've come from and the journey that we've been on. And I see these landmark moments of God intervening. How do you see the balance here between medical excellence and spiritual? I don't know if excellence is the right word, but we'll just say that between medical excellence and spiritual, spiritual excellence. I feel like it's somewhat unique to Kajabi. I think the origins of medicine were very intertwined with the spiritual, but at least in Western medicine, it's very divorced. And I feel like, I don't know, in some ways, what I see happening here is not taught in classrooms anywhere else. You know, this is one of those things that I am going to be taking with me for the rest of my life. Um, 
I don't know who's listening to this, but Americans have a cultural Christianity where you it's acceptable in medicine, I think, to ask medical questions and maybe you ask a spiritual question and saying God bless you and bless her heart and praying for people is somewhat accepted, but still it's a parallel track to medicine. In Australia, it's completely divorced. There's almost a cultural fear of discussing the spiritual in Australia. Very agnostic country. Um, and so to be a Christian in Australia, you have to make a choice. But then when you go to medical school, it's it's taught to you almost, don't bring that in. This is a science. And one of the things that I love about Kajabi is that they are inextricable and intertwined. There isn't a meeting that we start here without prayer. I, When I'm covering pediatrics as a clinician, we start with team prayer. And depending how busy things are, if you're trying to see 30 patients on rounds, you might pray for the room as you start. But on ICU, we stop. We ask the parents how they're doing and then we pray for the mum with her permission and for the baby or the dad or whichever caregiver is there. And we ask God to intervene. We ask God to give us wisdom. We ask him to be a part of the science. We ask him to be a part of the conversations. And when it comes to the even bigger picture, when it comes to strategically planning the hospital and our core values, again, they're inextricably intertwined and it's a gift. And one thing that I'm going to take with me um, as a leader and as a clinician is that it is not difficult to ask anyone, what is your worldview and what is your spiritual worldview? Because all of us have one. In Australia, that worldview might be, I don't believe there's a spiritual realm. That's so important to know. But what if the answer to that question is, you know, I believe in God, but I don't see him doing anything. What an opportunity we miss. What if we have immigrants in our population, in our community, and we don't ask them, what is your spiritual and cultural worldview? What do you think is happening beneath the surface? And we don't give someone an opportunity to say without derision, I think I've been cursed or there is a generational problem in my family and we don't open up the opportunity to intervene in a way that's holistic. How much we miss by not intertwining the spiritual and the physical. And the fact is every one of our community has a spiritual worldview and shame on us if we don't explore it with them. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> You know, that's, um, it's fascinating here because at least I thought before coming here, I thought of missions as giving. And the longer I'm here, the more I think of as receiving. When they, when you stop and pray for a family, the encouragement received from those family members is huge. And the trust and the love, um, and you do see people who, come in the halls and why are you here? Mm -hmm. Because my doctor will pray for me. You know what's interesting to me is there's some conversations going on in medicine around the world right now about this innovative new concept of compassionomics. And really <laughs> what, and it's exactly what you're saying. It's not new and it's not innovative. I think that compassionomics is our fearful way of re-exploring the spiritual. It's taking the time on rounds to say, how are you doing as a family? How are we doing as a team? And to take the opportunity to, to draw comfort from each other 
And it comes from a spiritual foundation that I think that we've lost. And I think a lot of it comes from burnout and from the way that medicine has become a business and a commodity that we have lost that and that we're starting to re-explore through Compassionomics. And I pray through exploring the spiritual, the deeper side of medicine that around the world I think people really miss. Right on. And if that's not reverse innovation, I don't know what is. Well, it's, it's fascinating, this space that Kajabi fills and how we think about it and how we talk about it. Because for me, I, I use a phrase, world-class healthcare in the developing world. Yeah. But when I use that, I don't mean that I want Kajabi to be the big hospital in the big city in the West. Because there are certain aspects that we don't want to lose. Yeah. And, and also when I say that, I don't necessarily mean, yes, absolutely, it would be super cool to be doing robotic surgery and some of these wild technological things. But really, I feel like what Kajabi excels at is not fancy and not glamorous. It's the fundamentals of medicine. Yeah. Um, and I remember Evelyn telling me this one time. I just asked her, "What, what do you, uh, what do you think about medicine <laughs> in general?" She said, "Well, when I have, when I have a challenge or when I'm stuck on a patient, I look at their history, hmm. and it's fascinating that that's fascinating. Some of the basic fundamentals of medicine." our practice here is just looking at your patient and yeah. laying your hands on them and touching them and talking to them yeah. and that a conversation is both it's both a diagnostic tool and it's actually medicine yeah if the numbers are true i mean i know it's different from orthopedic surgery than for outpatient but if if half of medicine is actually placebo yeah. this stuff is really important to healing and it's and it's not anti-science. It actually is science to care about people. And it's interesting when you mention the placebo effect. I think that the placebo effect is, is considered as nothing, but it's not. The placebo effect is actually a real effect. That's why it's called the placebo effect. It's that time and conversation and compassion truly do bring healing. And the point of a controlled trial is to see, can a drug do better than that? But the thing we're doing already makes sense. You know, it's interesting to me that medicine in the, around the world is getting faster and faster and more and more advanced. And time is money. And I think that around the world, we want to save money in medicine. We want to do more with what we have, but we're willing to sacrifice time to make that happen. And why is that the first thing that goes? Burned out physicians in high income countries, the thing that they loathe is when they have to see more and more patients in less and less time because they know what they have to offer is beyond a drug and beyond a diagnosis and beyond a referral and beyond a surgery. One of my favorite phrases in, in medicine that I truly don't understand but want to spend the rest of my life working on it is value-based care. And I think to define value, you have to define what we're offering. And if value is time, then one of the things I think that Kajabi and Mission Hospitals can continue to pioneer and lead the way in is, you know, how do we cut costs in other areas but refuse to sacrifice the cost of time and make sure that our impact... Um, is helpful for our patients, but that also helps our our team members and our clinicians 
receive the value that comes from being a part of a meaningful conversation. And I think that's what patients want too. They, they don't want the robotics. They come to us because they're helpless, vulnerable and afraid. And those are the things that we're treating. They trust what we tell them. And if we don't have the time to build up that trust, we've lost a lot of the value that we offer. What have you, what have you seen change about team and I mean, you guys have been part of this big culture process, but I think it's something that's started long before, long before either of us. Um, But what do you see, what do you see as kind of the arc of Kajabi and the arc of teamwork and the arc of culture? Kenyan's an incredibly multicultural and diverse country and Nairobi is high powered and it's fast and it's a lot of um, white collar and highly educated people and and Kajabi's not so far from that and I think we operate more in a Nairobi mindset than a, a rural um, small town mindset but that's that's actually been a huge transition I think is is going from perceiving ourselves as a a rural distant place to a part of a, a a busy, growing, rapidly advancing system. And so that comes with leadership styles that become more urban and more, I guess, more more modern in, in style. And so that's been the first big thing that I've just seen a huge arc over the part of the decade that I've been here is that leadership is no longer just top-down enforced. It, it's participational leadership. And I'm a, a massive fan of that. Leaders do have to make hard decisions and make things happen, but the input of the team has become a much, much higher priority in the last decade and and that's huge because our young highly educated highly um, aspirational I guess team members have got some great ideas and shame on us as leaders if we don't take the time to listen to their approach to things so that inclusive style of leadership has has been a huge arc Um, and then I think the other thing is just our our changing generations I mean millennials are not confined to high-income countries we have a young generation of people here who aren't going to stay in the same job for 40 years like their parents or their grandparents did. And that's the same globally. And so we've had to question, I think, over the last decade, how do you approach um, team members who are only going to be here for a little while? Do you see that as, ah, they're just going to go? Or do you get the maximum investment into them and benefit out of them in the time that they're going to be here and then release them with your blessing? And so that's been something that's been huge for me is when we've got these new graduate nurses or or lab staff or radiographers to not bemoan the fact that three years after they come to us, they go. It's to say, you know what, we've got these guys for three years. Let's sew into them. Let's get the most we can out of their recent education. Let's um, do what we can to to upskill them with the people that we've got here. And then let's release them all over Kenya to be great resources for healthcare across the country and across the region. Um, and I would say for that, yeah, for healthcare and for the gospel, yeah, because I've been I've been wrestling a lot with what does it mean for Kajabi to be a mission hospital, yeah. and I think the classic, I I don't know if we define it as such because um, I I don't often hear people say it out loud, but I think it's an unwritten thing that mm. what makes a mission hospital a mission hospital is that it cares for the poor. Um, and hopefully on some level or on a lot of levels, that will always be true at Kajabi. Yeah. But I'm really excited about the possibility of what you just described as if these guys are here for three or four years and we are training them with the attitude that they are going out 
as Christian leaders yeah. and as missionaries yeah. to these parts of Kenya that honestly you and I will never touch. And right. a lot of the places I've never even heard of. Um, but if we're equipping them to be the light, that's what, that's the huge opportunity that Kajabi has to be missional. This is a much, much longer podcast. <laughs> but defining mission is really, really important, isn't it? And I think that there's a couple of things that stick out to me as you're talking. And one is that I think mission has a history that can be associated with colonialism. And one thing I love about my time in Kenya is seeing that we are a globe of missionaries. The church that we attend in Nairobi um, was Mumlaka Hill Chapel. And these guys would send mission teams to New Zealand, which is fabulous. It's not that lower middle income countries are receiving missionaries anymore. All of us need the gospel. All of us need the full word of Jesus. And, and when you're spreading the gospel, what are you spreading? I think that this is, again, a much longer conversation. But I, I believe that we are called to go and make disciples. We are called to serve the sick. We are called to serve the poor. We are called to serve those in prison. And I, I focus on the, the parable of the sheep and the goats is one of my kind of life scriptures. When you were poor and sick and needy, whatever you did for the least of these, you did for me. And what I hope Kajabi does is that whoever passes through our doors, whether it be patient, whether it be staff member, that this is who we are. We love Jesus and we want you to know this incredible king who gave so much for us and who has an eternal life for us that starts now and eternal life starting now means making an impact and restoring that which is broken and it means restoring it now wherever you are and as our as our team members go out to work in other hospitals i i would hope that one of the indicators of success for us would be a lack of brain drain because it would show that we've shown people you know what there are people here that need you in healthcare and this is why I'm here. Um, if I had wanted to be an evangelist rather than a healthcare missionary, I should have stayed in Australia. Far less people in Australia know Jesus than in Kenya. But I felt like my call in mission was to serve the sick in a place where I could help other people do the same. That's That's been my passion here. But I'm called to go back to Australia now. Does that mean my mission life is over? <laughs> Absolutely not. It means that I'm going back to Australia to love Jesus and serve the sick there and to do it in a different way. And I think that understanding that all of us, whoever is listening to this podcast right now, wherever you are, you have a call to mission. It's that sphere of influence that God's put you in. Is it to take care of the poor or the sick or to love the wealthy who are lost around you that are never going to step foot in a church but need the love of Jesus every bit as much as one of our nursing students here in, in the college. Amen again. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. Um, all right, so back to Ebenezer's. <laughs> back to the stones that, I don't know, what, what things come to mind as you just look back over your time in Kajabi? What are... I don't know, hallmarks or turning points or just special things you think of? You know, there's a few. One of them, um, one evening sticks out to me because it's so indicative of the bigger picture and what we've been working towards is after I'd been here for about 
it was probably nine months or so. So one of the things that, that Jennifer and I noticed as we started out on paediatrics was that our nursing staff were incredibly passionate about their kids, but no one had really had the time to teach them about sick kids and how to resuscitate them, just basic life support, um, because they were so overwhelmed. You know, there's one nurse who was taking care of 12 to 15 patients, I think, at the time. That ratio is now one to eight, so it's much easier. But and they just hadn't had the opportunity to learn some of the, the basic life-saving assessment and, and resuscitation skills. And so um, we started doing just weekly mock resuscitations with the nurses. And uh, as we got to know each other and they got to trust me and to know that I wasn't there to to judge them but to try and help them we would do mock resources every week and people would stop being scared of coming and would come and would would be interested and actually keen to test their knowledge Um, when I started in 2011 about once a week I would get called in in the middle of the night to find a baby blue and not breathing who was dead and there was nothing that I could do but what we worked together on was setting up a resuscitation room and setting up the right equipment and so after about nine months of this, I was called in for yet another resuscitation in the middle of the night. And by the time I got there, the baby was just screaming and pink. And I asked the nurses what had happened. And it was the same story as always. This baby choked on milk. They had turned on the oxygen, given the baby oxygen, done some CPR, and they resuscitated that baby before I got there. They didn't need me at all. And the Ebenezer for me was the pride on their faces we are experts at this and we know what we're doing. And that has just escalated leaps and bounds. Now we've got outstanding nursing leadership and they're being equipped and taught and upskilled every day. And But that was an Ebenezer moment for me that the time taken to build relationship and team and invest um, doesn't just bring a resuscitated baby and life is important, but it builds team and it builds ownership and pride in this is what I've been called to do and I'm good at it. It's interesting because it's also, I mean, it's it's kind of what you guys, what you would do as individual doctors with your teams and doing mm-hmm. the mock code, but it's also very much a systems process for Kajabi Hospital, Yeah. right? Because a, a big part of solving that challenge was getting the right nursing ratios, but also setting up high dependency units to where children that you're concerned about could be escalated. Yeah. Did that happen during your time here or was that? Yeah. So when when we started here in 2011, um, children weren't really admitted to the ICU at all unless they were surgical patients who just had an operation and then the surgeons would take care of them and transfer them down to the ward. And so the pediatrics team wasn't really involved in any ICU care extremely rarely and we didn't have a high dependency unit and our definition of high dependency unit here is just a baby that can be monitored on a machine 24 7. this is something that it just shows you how reliant we are on on partnerships david so for example we decided um, the nursing and the medical team together decided look we think we need a three bed unit where at least the babies who are the more sick ones can be monitored on machines and so bethany kids were the ones who equipped we turned one of our wards into a three bed hdu in the old bethany kids wing and that was the first time we could put some higher risk babies on monitoring so that if they deteriorated we knew about it sooner and we saw deaths start to drop just with that simple thing. The other thing was that paediatricians who worked here in the past weren't necessarily equipped in how to do ICU care. And so Jennifer and I said, well, I'm a peds emergency physician and she's an expert in 
um, in resource poor medicine, between us we can probably figure this out. And so we started putting some babies in ICU who we knew had a condition that would be reversible if we could just hook them up for 24 hours to a ventilator. So we started um, ventilating babies with just pneumonia or bronchiolitis, things that, you know, you can, or, or sepsis, that was the other big one, something that if you can help their heartbeats more strongly for a day or two, you can turn the tide. And so we just started working with the ICU team to say, look, can we choose some babies to start bringing up here? And, you know, four years later, we were overtaking the ICU some of the time, and that's why we had to build a new paediatric ICU uh, which opened in 2016. All of these things are incremental and we stand on the shoulders of giants. Um, the Peds Ward, you know, existed because a surgeon said, I don't want babies with hydrocephalus and spina bifida to not get care anymore. And then we came along and said, we think that's great, but we think that babies with hydrocephalus and spina bifida who also have kidney problems and malnutrition should probably have a paediatrician care for them. And over time, that that degree of care that we've been able to offer has just grown and grown and we uh, had Dr. Sarah Muma as a paediatrician join us very quickly in 2012, then Dr. Ima Barasa. She was sponsored into paediatric residency long before I got here, and that was the foresight of the medical director back then to say, we are going to need some better paediatric care. And then I stepped into the medical director role, and people like Ima Barasa and Ariana came along, and they've just pushed it further and further and further. Um, none of us are satisfied with what we walk into, and we keep saying we can do better because these kids deserve more. That's fantastic. I think that's another another way when you think about the influence and the impact of Kajabi, it's that refusing to settle, you know, to say, yeah. this is possible, let's figure it out. Yeah. Um, and for, for all the team members to say that and, and commit to it, and for the leadership to support that, I think that's what makes Kajabi special. I read, read something the other day it was just an interesting take. Uh, it was somebody saying when before they came to Kajabi that someone said, why are you going to that place? You know, it has so much. But it only has so much because the, the immense sacrifice of so many people over so much time. Yeah. None of this showed up without the hours and the donations and just the right. years and years and years of work. Yeah. I remember you saying that about about Patrick with his ophthalmology laser. Yeah. Um, how did you phrase that? Patrick, he's such a wonderful example of the kind of person that doesn't look for reward but sees a need and just walks to the finish line. He started out, I believe, on the housekeeping team in the hospital. He's been here for... 20 years at least I think um, and then went through clinical officer training and then which is you know physician assistant level training and then received higher training in cataract surgery and he started our ophthalmology service in 2012 and since then he's started he's had nurses trained around him there's another clinical officer in training um, he's been doing cataract surgery and then he said we've got these diabetic patients and the care we offer isn't good enough we need a laser uh, he went to Tanzania and got laser training, and now he's going to start doing um, laser surgery on, on patients with diabetic retinopathy. And he refuses to be satisfied with the status quo. And that's the kind of, that is the heritage that we have here. Um, you know, talking about Ebenezer moments, I feel enormously privileged to have been here in 2015 as we, as a hospital, celebrated our centennial. 
And, you know, it took us a year to prepare for that. And I know you were a part of that process, David. And David's job was find all of the stories and all of the photos and interview all of the people. And let's make sure to document everything that might be lost if we lose these stories now. And being a part of that process was just, I was in tears so many times that year. You'd hear one more story about somebody whose commitment and sacrifice would never have been noticed, but we, we've been able to write down that story. And right back from, from 2015 with the Theodora Hospital, as we were known then, to hear the stories of not just these missionaries, but these extraordinary early nurses like Wairegi and Salome, who worked here for decades, who were initially trained informally because we didn't even have accreditation for the nursing program then. We didn't even exist as a country. And that's a really good point. <laughs> um, to, to hear those stories and to see, you know, our very first lab technician um, was just Amazing. And then when these 80 and 90 year olds came over from the US and saw the scope of the hospital as it exists now, it, it just gave me a glimpse into whatever we do today. We have no concept of 100 years from now, the fruit that that will bear. And I think a missional life is like that, isn't it? It's being okay with not seeing the fruit. There's foundations positive and negative that all of us lay in the interactions and the work that we do. And I think all of us, our, our prayer is that those those seeds that we plant would bear fruit. And we have to be okay with not seeing the fruit, with saying, this has been my contribution. I've stood on the shoulders of giants and now I hand over the baton to you who will come after me and make of it what you will. It's not my dream and it's not my goal. I've done my part and let's see where God takes it through you. And so very shortly, you're about to become a giant. <laughs> I, I really appreciate you. I appreciate you bringing that up. That was one of the most important things that could have ever happened. Is It was in the 2015. It was before we started Friends of Kajabi. Mm. But the realization for me, I, I always come back to it, was just how how long life is um it's yeah. both amazingly short and amazingly long um but watching watching dr barnett and realizing that he he was here you know he worked here for 30 years and then went back to the states and now he's i think he just hit 102 years old <laughs> but i'm thinking like but it really does bring into clear view what what is legacy and what does it mean and what are we building but also that this is very much outside of us. Yeah. Um, that we get to pour everything we have into it for a time, but then others will take up that work. And it's it's both humbling and amazing. And and I think it's helpful too, is many of us have a sense of, of calling on our lives. I think that this is what God has for me now, but we have to hold that with open hands because our view and our understanding of what God is doing is so small and what he is doing is so large. And I think sometimes in in this kind of setting, you come in with a dream and a passion and a goal, but you see that path shift and change during the time that you're here. And that is good and that is okay. Um, I think a danger is when we come in and think that we have the answers or we know exactly where God is going and then things don't work out and we 
we burn out or are bitter or are disappointed. And to come into a sense of mission and calling saying, not my will but yours be done and to just obey in the day-to-day and to see where it goes and to be okay with the direction being different at the end than it, one, than it was at the beginning, I think, I think that's how we lead a life led by the Spirit. We hold these things with open hands and say, God, take it where you will. And if it's a different place, let me just play my part in that. How, okay, I got to dig into that. Because <laughs> how, so how do you balance that? I would frame it as vision. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like it a good example to, to look at. I don't know if it's the right one. So you can choose a different one if you want to. But the balance between vision and practicality and reality right because because you say that and you are walking in the day-to-day but i just think of the organogram that you that has been on your wall which was in rich's wall (laughs) which is now your wall again which is about to be evelyn's wall and you had this vision back in 2015 for this is how i think i think the organization should work to function well but there's a four-year process and making that come to pass i mean how does how do those things i guess you know, how does the day-to-day and the long-term balance? You know, I think we're talking about spiritual and practical things combined, aren't we? But I think that, I mean, anyone who's in organisational leadership knows that your your organisation as a whole needs a trajectory and a long-term plan. But then we make these five-year strategic plans, which are based on the assumptions of today. And every strategic plan you need to go back every couple of years and say were those assumptions right and just to be a super business nerd for a minute you you base things on SWOT analyses and you base things on the current politics and economics and what does SWOT stand for strengths weaknesses opportunities and threats and then you do a a personal analysis you look at the politics you look at the economy you look at the social environment of the day etc etc and technology look at this world, everything is changing quicker than we can keep up with. And so I think that when you're, when you're looking at a place like Kajabi, which is large and complex, you set yourself some goals and you work with them, but you know something's going to change. Politics are going to change. The economy is going to tank. Maybe there's going to be a war on the other side of the world and we're the only source of this, that or the other. Maybe India falls into the sea and we start doing all of the surgeries that India was I just don't even know. But, you know, one thing for me, I've been enormously privileged to have been the medical director for two different terms that were separated by two years. And so I think I have a slightly unique perspective because from 2013 to 2016, I I set the way I thought that our division would work. And I came back into the role two years later and already it had changed, but Richard made it better. It's funny, I am... When I came into the role, um, my predecessor, Steve Letchford, said, look, you're going to need a deputy. You can't do this by yourself. And I looked at my team and said, "Um, no, I need four deputies. We're going to have four subdivisional heads because I this is too much for one or two people and I can't keep my ear to the ground without it. I came back after two years away and there were five deputies. And my initial gut reaction was, you changed my structure. And then I realised that Rich and Ken had made a really wise call. There did have to be five deputies for for lots of really good reasons. And that team of five has been my absolute rock this year. And doing this role for the second time... Who is the team of five? So the team of five, I've got a a head of inpatient medicine and paediatrics and specialties, and that's George Otieno. There's a head of outpatient department and community 
health and satellite clinics, and that's Miriam Mima. Um, I've got a head of surgery and anesthesia, and that's Jack Barassa. There's a head of pharmacy, and that's Elizabeth Irungu. And then there's a head of what we call allied and diagnostic. Uh, that incorporates the lab and pathology teams, radiology, physiotherapy, nutrition, and audiology. Um, and that the head of that is Jeffrey Mashia, who's a, a radiographer. And those, what's amazing to me about that is when I instituted this framework in, in 2014, there were four people and they were all missionaries and I've come back in 2018 and there are five people and they're all our Kenyan senior staff and they're extraordinarily talented and any one of them could stand in for the medical director when the medical director's away. What a gift that has been. Oh, I can't imagine for continuity yeah. because you think right now you guys are, you're handing off your, your responsibilities to Evelyn, but she has five people yeah. that, Really, those are the executors, and they they actually get to groom her in leadership. It's amazing, and for the yeah. strength of Kajabi and the stability, I mean, yeah. that's it's indispensable. I don't think there's another way to build a strong, stable system other than to build that. Yeah, that's actually one of the things that brings me so much joy as I leave is the team isn't going to notice too much the change in senior leadership because that level of day-to-day -day practical, strategic and operational leadership is just so strong. And I think it, it made Ken as my CEO, I think it made his job a lot easier to say, look, who, who should fill the position that Marty's vacating? He was able to say who's got institutional memory and who's got leadership expertise and wisdom and who knows how the senior leadership team works. But whoever that person is, they're going to have a team around them that will mean that no voices get lost in the transition. And, you know, when I when I took the job in, in 2013, hearing the voices of specifically, you know, missionaries and surgeons can be really noisy and you hear their voices, but who's listening to the head of palliative care and who's listening to the head of laboratory, who's listening to the head of nutrition, which is a tiny team of, of you know, four people. Those voices are well represented by wise people who all listen to each other and make the system work around them. It, it's a tremendous gift and there's no way to do this job without a team of people like that around you. Mm, and you know what? That's one of my other Ebenezer's, David, is looking at... One of my Ebenezer's is, is Thursday we installed Evelyn as the incoming medical director and seeing those five subdivisional heads praying for Evelyn as that took off, I will never forget that. Mm -hmm. mm. Absolutely. So I wasn't here the first time. If I remember, I, I should I should print out a series of those because <laughs> I, I, remember you, I remember you handing the hat to Rich and I remember going back to you. And then watching you give Evelyn the hat and the stethoscope, um, there's this legacy of of people that care, and and it's interesting to think about because you are, I mean, you're building this remarkable team and your system and a, you know things that operate independently of you, mm -hmm. but at the same time you're unbelievably special and have given a ton um, over the past years, and and you're. Is rich phrases. I mean, you you were in, you walked in shoes that not many other people will get to walk in. Um, and it's special. I mean, it's. 
I imagine it's what it's like, you know, when the when the former presidents get together for their picture. You know, there's there's things that only only you guys will know and only you guys will, will have experienced. Um, you know, one thing that that is really special is I, I think a lot of leadership transitions come through pain, brutality and war. And one thing that I noticed on Thursday is that in the room as I handed over leadership to Evelyn were Steve Latchford and Peter Bird, who have both been here for for decades and who've previously been the medical directors. And I think there's a beauty about the transition of leadership here um, in the clinical division that it hasn't come through attrition, war and burnout. I'm, I'm leaving with a lot of sadness and I'm not cutting ties with this place to see and there has been a cost. We, Rich, I know, would still love to be here in this position as as the person who was my predecessor. But to see such strength of leadership that is here and sowing into the next generation rather than leaving when they died, they've stepped down and gone into leading other areas to ensure that the team that follows them is strong. I, I think that's a tremendous gift and it's something unique about Kajabi is people love this place and they love this team. And they want to be a part of its ongoing success in in its broader mission. Yeah, and they love, and they love that above their own glory and their own desires. Yeah, and yeah. that's, I I think that's what makes uh, it what it's what makes an organization great. It's what makes a country great. And, fa- and I think it, it's probably got to be easier in a place of faith. Honestly, yeah. that this is God's ministry. Yeah, not our own that's you know not any one person's yeah fpec what is fpec and i think this is important for people to know a little bit about how hard is it to create a training program (laughs) or anything new in kenya so fpec is the fellowship program in pediatric emergency and critical care Ariana and I are pediatric emergency physicians. We trained in pediatrics and then we did specialty training in how to take care of emergencies and resuscitation and that kind of thing. Um, And we're the only two formally trained pediatric emergency doctors in Kenya. Critical care is taking care of kids in ICUs. And currently in the country, there are four pediatric ICU doctors for 55 million people. I don't have the stats at my fingertips, but... It's extraordinarily low. I mean, think of the city where you live and how many ICU beds there are and how many children's hospitals you have just in your own city uh, if you're based in a high-income country. For 55 million people, there's kids that just can't access that care. But what's even... I mean, recently, I'm sure it's gone up, but... Two years ago, it was like 100 beds for the country. Yeah, for adults and kids. And in the country, there are 12 pediatric ICU beds. And, you know... Actually, no, that's not true. There are, there are 16 and eight of them came into existence when we opened our Peds ICU here three years ago. And keep in mind, like this is East Africa. Of the 50, uh, 56 million people, 33 million of those are under age 18. That's right. That's right. So 16 beds. That's right. And think of anything that can cause a critical illness, trauma, illness, cancer, you name it, that that's not enough beds. <laughs> um, so when when I came to Kenya, I had no dream of starting a training program. That wasn't even remotely on my radar. But, you know, sometimes things just come together at the right time. And 
um, it was actually University of Nairobi where they have the only other PEDS ICU. They had been working with um, University of Washington in Seattle to say, look, can you help us start some training? Um, this is really important because in East Africa, there's nowhere that a paediatrician can learn how to run an ICU. It, think of the US, every state has got multiple training programs where paediatricians will spend three years to learn to be an ICU doctor. There is nowhere for 360 million people in this region to learn how to do ICU care for, for children. Like, just think about that for a second. 360 million people, no training program. Um, there's one in Cairo um, and there's one in Cape Town. But that's, you know, for 600 million people. So I'm just taking a few of them where there's nowhere to go. Um, and so anyway, University of Nairobi was talking to, to Seattle. They've got two PEDS ICU doctors in Nairobi um, and they were thinking of starting a program. And then just through several contacts, again, actually through um, the Christian Mission Network, one of University of Washington's PEDS ICU doctors um, grew up in Nigeria, but she's involved with the Christian Medical and Dental Association. And so she knew about Kajabi. And so the University of Washington team came out to Kenya for a visit and they said, hey, we heard you're doing some ICU care in Kajabi. Can we come out and see what's happening? And that was 2013. Wow. Um, they came out and said, hey, what are you guys doing here? And we showed them around and they had no idea. that Th Their minds were blown. They didn't know there was any PEDS ICU care happening outside of Nairobi at all. And so we rapidly started some conversations and said, look, why don't we start a training program in paediatric emergency care and critical care? And our trainees can train at both Kijabi Hospital and Kenyatta Hospital in Nairobi. And they can get an exposure to two different types of ICUs. They can also take advantage of the fact that Ariana and I are here as PEDS emergency faculty. And we can split the training load. I mean, Training programs in the US have you know dozens of faculty for something like this. To rely on just two doctors in Nairobi was an incredible risk, um, even though University of Washington is supporting with, with visiting faculty. So we said, look, we've got all these people in the country at the same time. Let's just try and do it. So we started that process in 2013. We took our first fellows at the beginning of this year. It's, it's taken us six years. And that's how things work here you've got to form relationships. University of Nairobi didn't know us real well when it came to our paediatric care. We had to get to know each other. We had to develop a curriculum. We had to let the Ministry of Health know. We had to get the Kenya Paediatrics Association on side. The Kenya Medical Practitioners and Dentist Board had to approve the program. The University Senate had to approve the program. We had to try and get some funding in place. None of that happens quickly. That's all relationship. That's all a lot of chai that's all a lot of back and forth and making sure that you don't try and skip anything to get through the hoops any quicker than you need to because if you try to go too quick it falls apart and if university of nairobi and kenya doesn't own this program it's not going to last and i think that that's probably the first thing to take away for me is this program exists because university of nairobi and kenya wanted it i didn't come in here and say we need this University of Nairobi wanted it and we said, how can we support it? And so Ariana showing up here for a short-term visit, which we rapidly recruited you guys to stay <laughs> long-term, was it was God's timing because Ariana and I couldn't have done this independently from each other. Um, and it's taken both of us to build those relationships over the last six years. 
Um, and Ariana and I are so proud of this program. Um, our first two graduates um, will finish this training at end of December 2020. And we hope and pray that we can recruit them to stay at Kajabi and University of Nairobi as our first homegrown faculty. Um, and what's been lovely about that too is that we've connected with people all over the world who want to support this kind of thing. They just didn't know how. And we're hoping that this program can be a model. No, they did not know how. <laughs> there wasn't a way. It literally no did way. not exist no until way. February 2019. That's right. And so now we're actually talking to colleagues in Uganda and Tanzania and colleagues in Sudan um, and other places about, hey, is this a good model for you? I've got some contacts in Nigeria. There's, you know, Nigeria's got how many million people? 30 million people or something ridiculous and there's no way to get this training there either and people all over the world want to be able to support what a country wants to start in its own strategy um, and so that's something that I'm just thrilled to be leaving and even as we leave next month I'm hoping and planning to come back at least once a year to, to teach in the program for the foreseeable future and to support Ariana from a distance in continuing to connect people all over the world to say here's a way that your global health desires can interface with a local country's needs. Mm. I mean, you, you two are the only peds emergency medicine doctors in the country. And there's a realization that what, what actually is emergency medicine here and what is the difference between what it looks like here versus America? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a really great question. First of all, Ariana and I trained in a country where there are multiple children's hospitals per city. And so pediatric emergency medicine is the emergency department attached to a children's hospital. There are less than 10 children's hospitals on this entire continent, I think. So <laughs> there are no pediatric emergency departments. What is really great is that emergency medicine combined adult and pediatric is a growing specialty here and there's been so much great work that's gone that's going on in so many countries around the region um, Rwanda last year just graduated their first class of emergency residents um, Uganda is just on the cusp um, great advocate there um, Annette Alenyo is is leading the charge for emergency medicine in Uganda um, ben Washira is an emergency medicine trained doctor here at Aga Khan University, and they are on the cusp of starting an emergency medicine residency training program. Um, you know, emergency medicine's a funny thing. Emergency medicine in a high-income country is a part of a functioning system. Emergency medicine in the US means that you've got ambulances that get your people to you, and you've got an ICU at the other end you send sick people to. Emergency medicine here is... People show up on our doorstep, we don't know how to get them here, and then where do we send them? And I think that emergency medicine training here is, is so much more broad. We're, we're training people how to provide emergency medicine, but how to be advocates in a broader system. And I think if you live in a high-income country, you can't understand how much Medical training is not about medical training. It's about advocacy and building access to care for people no matter where they're at. And so what I, what I see emerging here is from the start, it's collaborative. Emergency medicine training here isn't just training a doctor in a specialty to graduate you and give you a certificate and leave you there. It's connecting you with people who are trying to get paramedic systems going and people trying to build ICU care. And that's why one of the reasons we realised that our paediatric emergency and critical care program had to be both, 
there's not enough places to work where you've got the luxury of staying in the ICU. Our, our graduates are going to go out and work in hospitals where they will be expert trainers for the paediatricians running the ICU and the family medicine doctors running the emergency department and the surgeons who are doing paediatric surgery with just general training. Our, our graduates are going to be those advocates drawing teams together asking how can we improve the system from arrival at our doorstep till the day we send them home. And so it, it's a different focus in our training. Yes, the skills are necessary. You need to know how to you know, run a ventilator and keep a heart pumping when it's not. But it's, it's about building a team and being a part of solving systems issues and hopefully in a way that is affordable and sustainable. I love that word, systems. Yeah. It's been... For me, this is the year of systems, thinking broadly about each of these individual parts, yeah. because that's um, it's another way that healthcare here is very different from healthcare in the U.S. The U.S. is just subspecialization. Yeah, that's what it's all about, and here there's there's not a fine line between you know for emergency medicine doctor you're not sitting out in casualty waiting for a kid to come in. That's right. If you want to find the emergency, you just walk around and lay eyes on every kid. And there's going to be one out of 70 children in that building yeah. who is in trouble. Yeah. Um, and so it really is a bigger and broader way of thinking about things. You know, I think another thing that's interesting to me, just as we come back to the missional aspect of who we are, I think, you know, 100 years ago, a missionary was someone who would go into deepest, darkest, wherever, and... <laughs> be whoever they wanted to be. I think as we consider what is global mission, our question needs to be, what is that country looking for? What systems are they trying to develop and how do we help them in it? And that comes down to health. It comes down, you know, if you're a missionary, what is the global, what does the local church want to do? What is their mission and how can we assist them in it? colonialization isn't something any of us want to be and but a lot of us do want to help and I think we need to ask better what system is someone trying to build and how can we be a part of it because that's that's the key isn't it we're we're here to to serve God who's restoring creation and he's doing it in lots of different ways already we don't need to necessarily think we've got the answer but to say god where are you working and how can i be a part of it and what does it look like and you know i think mary adam in her community health project is a really lovely example of that community health growth is a priority of kenya and so she's gotten grant funding and she is just sewing in it she knows i don't know every county governor in the country i'm suspecting and she knows how to get into the system but how to be salt and light and how to be the love of jesus in making things functional and making all things new and you know i think that's one thing that i think kajabi is doing well is that we are looking at health strategy and saying, how can we be a part of it? I love that our FPEC program is in partnership with University of Nairobi. I love that, you know, our clinical officers have a program that we got accredited called the Emergency Critical Care Clinical Officer Program. That actually wasn't a part of health strategy, but we did see a gap. And as soon as we trained people in that, we went to the clinical officer council and said, hey, you want to accredit this? This is a really good program. And they did. And now the Kenya Medical Training 
training college has taken that program and they're doing their own program. I mean, that's, I, th- I think those are lovely examples of saying we're here to bring restoration, but we don't want to be separate from the system. Where are you going and how can we help? What does that mean for Friends of Kajabi? How do you see that working with Friends of Kajabi as an organization? You know, what's been really lovely about Friends of Kajabi in the last year, and I know you're excited about this too, David, is is honing what the Kajabi, the Friends of Kajabi vision and mission is. And I think a core part of Friends of Kajabi is that we've got the CEO, the CFO, and the Director of Clinical Services on the Friends of Kajabi board. And one question that I've heard you ask so many times in the last year is, where are you going and how can we help? What are your priorities? And Friends of Kajabi exists in so many ways to help the hospital further its strategy, but it also exists as a uh, as a bit of a connector, doesn't it, be- be- between people in high-income countries who really want to contribute and who have passions. And where does that intersect with the hospital strategy? So Friends of Kajabi is not going to take the whole hospital strategy and try and piecemeal help every part of it. They're going to say, hey, here are parts of your strategy that our heartbeat resonates with. And and that's become very clear. A lot of Friends of Kajabi um, funding currently goes towards whatever the hospital thinks is important. And the hospitals prioritise the theatre expansion project this year, and that's great. But... At its core, Friends of Kajabi also says we support the needy, we support education, and we support sustainability and how can we get there. And so has prioritised putting money towards each of those areas which happen to align with the core values of Kajabi Hospital. So, you know, a large proportion of what Friends of Kajabi Hospital, Friends of Kajabi is doing this year is helping us with an infrastructure project. But every year we're going to re-ask what are your priorities and how can we help? but here's where our heart beats and can we help with this too? And I think one of the things about Friends of Kajabi is there's that that trust that's developed since its inception. As Friends of Kajabi, we trust that the hospital leadership is following a strategy that is meaningful, that is sustainable, and that is in line with where Kenya is going and where the Africa Inland Church is going because that's who we're owned and operated by. As long as our missions intersect, then I think Friends of Kajabi can trust that the hospital's taking us in a good direction. Awesome. Well, um, anything else I should ask you? <laughs> anything you'd like to add? No, it's been an extraordinary eight years and uh, it's been such a privilege to be here. And it's lovely to leave with joy, even as there's associated sadness. And I really can't wait to see what the next few decades bring. And I'm going to be watching both from a distance and also up close when I come back to visit. Awesome. Thank you, Marty.